It's the most anticipated WNBA season in history. And you know what that means. Court is back in session. Welcome to Queens of the Court, an Odyssey original podcast. I'm your girl, Cheryl Swoop. And I'm Jordan Robinson. All WNBA season long, we'll be bringing you interviews with star athletes, analysis on your favorite teams, and lots of hot takes. Order, order in the court. Follow and listen to Queens of the Court on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Originals. If you have any tips as it pertains to this story, please reach out to tips at gangstercapitalism.com or our tip line 347-674-6980. We can ensure anonymity. To be honest, it feels a little weird, but... You know, she came in at around 1,200, but I think we can bring that up. His kid had no idea that you helped him on the ACT or the test you took. And just so you know, he started talking about the side so door approach So we just have to say have. we made a donation to your foundation. But saying that you work with those schools, story. I think that might make this. This was when we did the testing. The yeah. only one who yeah. can catch it is if you guys... I can give you the money. exact date of it. It's never happened. I can actually send that to you if that, if that helps. Throughout this podcast, we have reenacted real conversations that Rick Singer, the ringleader of the college admissions scheme, had with parents. They've all been taken directly from the 204-page affidavit, and all of them make you shake your head. But there's one in particular that we haven't shared yet. First of all, he can get on the plane. Like, like he, according to him, he's like, I don't really feel that bad. I think I'm okay. This is a conversation between Jane Buckingham and Rick Singer. Buckingham is a youth marketing expert and author who's written a parenting guidebook as well. She's been described as one of the 25 most powerful women in Hollywood. Here, she's speaking to Singer about how they'll get her son to take the ACT in Houston at a school where Singer pays off a test administrator. But there's a problem. Her son is getting ready to have tonsil surgery in Los Angeles. So Buckingham is asking Singer if her son even has to show up for the test. The request is absurd, even by Singer's standards. This doctor is a little over-conservative. Part of my challenge is that my ex-husband is being incredibly difficult about the whole surgery. And if I take him to Houston and then he can't get the surgery, he's gonna be very annoyed with me. So my question is, there's no way for him to not go and it's still to be done, I assume? Oh, maybe I can do that, but I just don't. I have to talk to the proctor to make sure she's fine with doing it. Right. It's the gal who runs the school. Right. So I have to ask her. I just got off the phone with her, but if are you okay with that? The roles are now suddenly reversed. Buckingham tells Singer what she is thinking. What I would do is, uh, I would say to you, can you give me a test for him to take at home that we proctor him, that, that I proctor him? Got it, got it. Okay, yeah, I guess we could do, we could do something like that. I mean, that's just, I, I guess, and it's the only thing I can think of, if you think it's doable. Yeah, so the only fact, the only other way is that ACT allows a three-week window, unlike SAT, which is a three-day window. Right. Singer talks to the Houston-based test administrator, who he pays off, 
named Nikki Williams. And then he updates Buckingham. So I just talked to Nikki, the gal at the Youth and Test Center, and she's back on the 25th of July. It just depends on whether he gets the surgery or not. I know, I know. He can't. He can't fly for two weeks after that. Okay, so let me call Nikki and ask her if she would have a problem with Mark Rydell just doing this. Yeah. Which would actually make it easier for him to do it because it would take less time. But let me call Nikki right now and see what she says. Singer speaks with Nikki Williams again and then calls Buckingham back. I said, Nikki, I've been doing this forever. She said, I get it, but this, like, this is crazy. To be clear, Jane Buckingham is suggesting that Singer send her a copy of the ACT so that her son can take it at home and think that he took the real thing. In reality, the plan is for Mark Rydell, a.k.a. the really smart guy, to show up in Houston and take the test for him. Yeah, I know this is craziness. I know it is. And then I need you to get him into USC, and then I need you to cure cancer and make peace in the Middle East. (laughs) I can do that. I can do that if you can figure out a way to boot your husband out so he treats you well. You're treated better. That's impossible. That's impossible. But, you know, peace in the Middle East, you know, Harvard, the rest of it, I have faith in you. Got it. Got it. All right, so I'll tell Mark Rydell now that he's just going to pick it up from Nikki, take it, and Nikki will send us a copy, and your son can take it sometime next week when he's feeling better. Yeah, I mean, look, he can take it Saturday. I have no problem with him taking it then. But it's not an issue with that. It can be any time he wants. Right. Okay. Okay. After Singer speaks to Nikki Williams one last time, he follows up with Buckingham. Okay, so here's the deal. Okay. So Nikki is willing to do it. We are trying to get ourselves like 34 on the ACT. Yeah, yeah. It should be noted that a 36 is a perfect score. So Mark Rydell will do that. It's really, can be a 33, it could be a 34, it could be a 35. Right. But so anyways, so the she said she would do it. She would send us a copy of the test that we're going to take. Okay. And then even though we're already going to send in his test, there at least your son will have taken the same test. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so your donation is going to be 50. It'll, it'll end up being through our foundation. Okay. And I'm already sending a check to the proctor today and to Nikki today because she said, i got to have the money first. Okay. So Jane Buckingham's son takes a fake test at home in Los Angeles. Meanwhile... Mark Rydell takes the test for Buckingham's son in Houston, in the comfort of his hotel room. Mark scores a 35 out of a possible 36. And Buckingham's son is now in the 99th percentile in the country. We help the wealthiest families in the U.S get their kids into school. It's so hard for these kids to get into college and look what's going on behind the scenes. Jared Kushner became the poster child for admissions preference. Today, that two and a half million dollars kind of looks like jump change. There will always be rich people applying to schools who want private school advisors. These people have after school snack advisors. I went to Yale. My son went to Yale. It's Jack's turn.
calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Jane Buckingham and the other parents all used what Rick Singer called the side door, which was his illegal cheating and athletic recruitment scheme. But many think that the side door wouldn't exist without what's become known as the back door. The back door is the perfectly legal practice of giving money to a school with the understanding that that money will help someone you care about gain admission. This practice is an open secret. But now, we're going to hear about how it works from the inside. I've had so many conversations with friends of mine where I've just openly said, yeah, I did that. I was a part of that. And they look at me, and they, they kind of look at me with their eyes wide open like, what? I was like, 100%. I did that. That's nothing new. And people are, it's mind-boggling to them. And I'm like, you don't understand how this works. The person speaking is a former development officer for the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her job was to solicit monetary gifts for the school from donors. In the interest of anonymity, we've altered this person's voice, and we're going to call her Mary. I would just call it the attention scale. You know, how much attention are you going to get for these dollars? I mean, this is a business. It's basically an a la carte menu. Here's what $100,000 gets you. At about $100,000, we're going to start to pay attention. We're going to welcome you to campus. We're going to give you some special experiences. Your application is going to be flagged as having association with a major gift. Here's what $250,000 gets you. $250,000. Okay, we're definitely listening now. We're going to do a lot for you. We're going to talk to the head of university advancement and have a member of the staff personally show them around campus. They're going to sit with the dean. They're going to get a signed basketball jersey with a little message saying, you know, good luck. We hope to see you in the fall. And this is what $500,000 gets you. At $500,000, unless your grades are horrific, you are 99% probably going to get in and you're going to get all the things you got at $250,000. But now we're in business. And a million dollars? At a million dollars, if you're breathing, if you have a pulse and you can string a sentence together, I mean, we are excited about you. 
I mean, there are only a few things that would keep you from gaining admission. If you have felonies on your record, if you've been kicked out of multiple private schools, although I have seen that, and I have taken that gift, and that child has gotten in. We see it as a win-win. The university is benefiting, the donor's happy, who is usually an alum, the child is getting what they want, um, and probably the child isn't even aware. I brokered more than 10 of those. I helped 10 kids get into the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill who would have never gained admission otherwise. There's zero chance they would have gotten in had it not been for the financial contributions that their parents, grandparents, or family friends made. And so is it really that big of a deal if I help 10 get in? Well, the problem is there's a hundred of me on campus. But I gotta be honest, while I was there, I was finding so many great excuses for why it was okay. Well, these dollars are going to scholarship for kids that couldn't otherwise afford to attend. These dollars are going to recruit an amazing faculty member. We're getting someone of a certain caliber that we wouldn't otherwise be able to afford. We are doing all these other things that enhance the fabric of this university. You know, all of this is all woven together. So is it really that bad? What about that kid from Eastern North Carolina who is smart as a whip, whose parents make just enough to get by, they're gonna miss out on that spot because somebody else's kid, you know, they had half a million or a million bucks behind their application. For me, it started to feel like, okay, this is not really for the greater good. It just felt so hollow. And it's the reason why I will never work within higher education again I don't know that I really believe anymore that a college or university is this incredible place for exploration and self-discovery because I'm so disheartened by what I've experienced and what I've seen. The system is beyond broken, and I don't know how to fix that. Rick Singer's side door may have never happened without the back door. He saw a niche that he could fill by catering to the rich, but not the super-rich. The super-rich don't need the side door. They donate buildings and give incredible sums of money directly to the schools. No middleman needed. But many say that the back door, a practice that perpetuates legacy and entitlement, is really what's broken about the system. I remember first thinking about this when I watched the TV show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? In the admissions process, if you're rich, there's a variety of lifelines. You know, if you don't have any special preference and your record doesn't look good, it might never get a second look. But if you're connected, it gets a second look. So you're rescued by a lifeline. That's Daniel Golden. He's a journalist, author, and Pulitzer Prize winner who wrote the best-selling book, The Price of Admission. How America's Ruling Class Buys Its Way Into Elite Colleges, and Who Gets Left Outside the Gates. Jared Kushner, a long time before he married Ivanka Trump and became the president's son-in-law and advisor, he became the poster child for admissions preference. His father, Charles Kushner, was a very wealthy real estate developer, 
and uh, had no connection to Harvard whatsoever. And yet he pledged two and a half million dollars to the university around the time Jared was looking at colleges. And Jared was an average student at his high school, and yet he got into Harvard while better students in his high school didn't. Now, of course, today, that $2.5 million kind of looks like jump change compared to what it looks like some people are willing to pay to get their kids in. If you're a uh, billionaire, nowadays you might give $10 million or more to a college. College is a big business, so colleges prostitute academic standards and admission standards for the sake of revenue. So influential and powerful and wealthy people across the ideological spectrum, the system benefits them. The other part of the flawed system that Dan speaks about is something called legacy. Legacy is a preferential status that is given to applicants applying to a university whose parents or relatives are alumni. Many argue that it's set up to perpetuate status. Although legacy may be controversial, politically, it's something that seems to be nonpartisan. You know, Democrats and Republicans don't agree on much these days, but they agree that, uh, you know, they want their kids to get a preference at the college they went to. So, uh, you know, it's hard to pass any uh, legislation otherwise. And, you know, I don't think the colleges are ever going to do it on their own initiative. So it's a difficult thing to see it changing in any major way. I mean, this current scandal will result in uh, small changes at the edges. But I think that's about it. The myth, and maybe it's we've built this myth up, but the commonly shared myth is that through education, anyone can move up. And this case shows us, no, it's money. It's money that moves you around. That's Caitlin Flanagan. You heard from Caitlin in episode three. She's an author and journalist now, but she began her career as an educator at an elite private school in Los Angeles. And then she was promoted to the college admissions office at the school. She says she hated that job, especially the one day every year that the acceptance letters arrived. When the admissions letters came out, the office would be stormed. It was kind of like the end of the World Series. Like when you go back and forth, like there's the dugout of the losers. It's like, oh, the worst day of their lives. You know, they're trying not to cry. And then you keep going to the field and there's the winners. And it's just this intense joy. So... It would be this horrible thing where you'd have these huge flowers would be delivered to our offices, champagne in baskets. And at the same time, people are coming and they looked like their kid had died. The level of grief, the level of trauma, and in some cases, the level of anger was beyond my descriptive powers. And there was a parent, he had gone to this Ivy League college, let's call it Yale, and his older son had gone in. But the younger son, we'll call him Jack, didn't get in. And the father screamed and everyone heard, I went to Yale. My older son went to Yale. It's Jack's turn. It was so filled with legitimate anguish and legitimate rage and an absolute conviction that this kid we're calling Jack, it was his turn. Like it was his turn to go on the jungle gym, or it was his turn to get the ice cream. It's his turn. His father went, his brother went. It's his turn. And it was just 
galling, and they truly believe people are stealing their turn, that this belongs to us, and something's happened, and it's getting stolen away. And I think that when you get now to the current day with this scheme, I guarantee you the thinking of the parents is this, the system is irrational. Therefore, I can do an irrational thing to hack into it. And that's why we're all so repelled by this. But not everyone agrees. Some believe that legacy is valuable. We have in American history a sort of tradition of this kind of thing. I mean, nobody was enraged at the concept of the Kennedys all having gone to Harvard. The Kennedys said, well, we're not just going to come in here and take things. We have some sort of sense of, uh, quote-unquote, noblesse oblige, which is even something that Harvard acknowledges now. It says that it doesn't want to train merely the future academics of the world. It wants to train the future leaders. That's Liam Warner, a rising senior at Harvard University. Liam is an opinion columnist at the Harvard Crimson, the school's newspaper, and earlier this year, he wrote an article in defense of legacy admissions. People just say, well, it's just inherently better to have a cross-section of America, the world, whatever. I don't see a whole lot of justification there. That seems like a weird fixation on having sort of a representative sample of every racial and ethnic group you can think of so that you can have sort of a, it's like sampling national cuisines or something. So I've tasted this and this and this and this and this, so now I can deal with everybody. You don't have to be specially educated in how to talk to black people. You can just talk to people. The primary goal is not to have a racially diverse class. The primary goal is to have qualified people from all over the place, particularly from, I think, the United States. And I think that's way more valuable than just piling a list of minority students into a room so that you can confer a kind of prestige on them to compensate for whatever hardships they've had to go through. Because it doesn't seem to me that we've done a good job of making up for the hardships using that way. And while we've been at it, we've just debased the educational purpose of the degree in the first place. People say, well, it seems somehow unjust to do this legacy thing because it's perpetuating some sort of caste system, I guess, that's oppressing the people who don't get to go to Harvard. Everyone says, we have a social advantage once we leave the school by virtue of having this degree. And we need to pin that on other people who don't already have it. And therefore, we're going to say, you have to go to the back of the line, and we're going to distribute now this Harvard benefit to a different family, just because we feel the need to move it around, which I think probably has the effect of turning all of the schools into interchangeable entities, differentiated only by geography. That sort of corrupts, I think, what the point of the university is. And losing the thing that gave you the reputation in the first place. For those who aren't looking for a side door or a back door, and aren't legacy applicants, but are looking for a little extra help, there are admissions experts, especially in cities like New York. It's New York. Where you start is where you finish. You know, where you start is really where you finish. That is the way these people think. I think that parents 
come to us only for one reason, one reason, so that in the end of the process, they don't feel they failed their children. That's Amanda Yuri. Amanda is the founder and CEO of Manhattan Private School Advisors, an educational advisory firm that counsels families on how to get their children into elite schools. She began her company in 2001, and it's grown exponentially since then. There will always be rich people applying to schools who want private school advisors. These people have after-school snack advisors. You know, of course they're going to hire a private school advisor too. Okay, that's part of the deal. Just because you're a one percenter doesn't mean you understand what not to say in an interview at the Dalton School, okay? Do I think the one percenters need help too? Yeah, they make, they make more mistakes than anybody else. This is like plastic surgery. No one needs plastic surgery. They want it. But damn it, there better be good people to administer to that. Otherwise, your nose is going to end up on your forehead. Private school advising is the same deal. You want it, you don't know how to do it. No matter what the finances and what the socioeconomic stature of a family is, I don't think this is a process parents can do on their own. Because the problem is people don't know how to get their kids into schools. You have no idea what you're doing or what you're up against. It looks, you know, oh, I have this little cute four-year-old and I want to apply her to private school. You don't even know what you're up against until you're in the middle of it. You're up against tremendous competition. You heard that right. The parents that Amanda works with usually have children between two and four years old. And they're looking for help to get those children into a top private preschool in New York City. Those schools are feeders into elite kindergarten through 8th or 12th grade private schools, which often end up sending many of their students to the top colleges in the country. So there's a lot of pressure on the parents to give their kids a leg up. Maybe the best example of this is back in 2011, when a woman sued a preschool in New York for failing to prepare her four-year-old daughter to get into an Ivy League school. In the lawsuit, her lawyers wrote, Getting a child into the Ivy League starts in nursery school. The suit went on to claim the school proved not to be a school at all, but just one big playroom. The mother was upset that her daughter was spending most of her time learning about colors and shapes and not being prepared for the pre-K version of the SAT, an admissions exam required by almost all top-tier private elementary schools. Everybody always, even if your kid is two, thinks about college. Will my kid get into the right college from this school or the college she or we want her to go to? To be really honest with you, kids would be happy anywhere, any school, no problem. It's really about the parent's choice. A lot of this is ego-based. Every parent thinks they're doing a great thing for their kids, and they're not. It's not the school in the end, it's the kid. Everybody thinks, oh, my God, my kid got into this top preschool, this top kindergarten. They've got it made for life. No, they don't. It is much better to be the smartest kid in the dumbest school than the dumbest kid in the smartest school. I can promise you that. As you can imagine, these schools aren't cheap. And parents trip over each other for the opportunity to pay tuition, which at some schools is more than Harvard's. Private schools are about $50,000 a year. Now multiply that. Some schools go from pre-K to grade 12. Multiply that by 14 years, and that is quite a sum of money. So it is a huge investment. Huge. 
Similar to college admissions, the intensely competitive environment leads parents to take creative license with their children's, well, transcript. Your four-year-old isn't really concerned about the homeless and volunteering to help them. You're concerned about the homeless and volunteering to help them. The kid is coming along. You sound stupid. One of my clients who has an 18-month-old, she says to me, the kid is 18 months old. She goes, oh, I'm going to start him on fencing right now. I was like, what? The kid can't pick up a fencing foil. What are you talking about? This kid is 18 months old. I've seen this a thousand times. Learning French. How much French do you think an 18-month-old is going to learn? None. Please. They'll do stuff that is just unbelievable. We stop them and say, don't do it. We know from experience you look like an idiot. A kid who can eke out Twinkle Twinkle Little Star on the violin is not the next Mozart. Every time we see a parent essay that says the word genius, we say to the parents two things. One, schools don't really want a genius in the class. The teacher has to devote too much attention to that child, number one. Number two is how do you know your kid's a genius? Also, you get ridiculous people. You're applying to a Catholic private school, Sacred Heart, St. David's. You get the Pope to write a letter of recognition. Does the Pope go to Gymboree with your three-year-old? I mean, what? Yeah, that actually happened. It was, like, laughable. You know, it was like calling up Bill Clinton to write a letter. Oh, yes, Bill Clinton hangs out with your five-year-old. Come on. You think these schools don't see through this? They're looking to see if a kid for preschool is developmentally intact. And isn't the kid that's, you know, opening the hamster's cage and throwing the hamster out the window? You know, they, they look at the kid, but they look more at the parents. Are these people they want to have around for the next 13 years? Amanda's clients will likely continue to use her when looking for the right fit at the next stage as well. But she says college has become something very different than what it used to be. If you go to the average top-tier university today, you'll see a lot of rich kids and you'll see a lot of poor kids, kids who are first-generation college students. And the middle class is getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed out. And it's a shame because some of these kids are so bright. Nothing worse than being like some kid at a public school in a very good town with good grades and good scores whose father is, you know, a lower-level CPA and mom is a Montessori teacher or whatever, and the kid is trying to apply to college. They can't get in. They can't get in. You have to have your parents be Pakistani immigrants who worked in a factory to feed you and clothe you or to have your father be a hedge fund billionaire. Those are the people that schools want. That's it. It's just, it's a very difficult time in America. It's the rich versus the poor. Last week, I got an email from one of our listeners, Christopher Qualls. We called up Chris, and he agreed to read his email to us. Here's Chris. I'm fascinated by the story being told by gangster capitalism but I think you've missed a great deal of the implications unto this point. Chris is in his 20s now, and he described his upbringing in Louisiana. As a child, my family was in poverty. My brother and I were raised by a single father who was working class. We rented a small house with two bedrooms and one bathroom. In order to give my brother and me our own rooms, my dad slept on the living room couch. Chris's dad made sure that he and his brother knew that education was the key to a better life. My dad signed my brother and me up for the ACT as early as the seventh grade. 
I took the ACT five different times. One year, I spent an hour every day after school studying an ACT prep book, hoping that I could raise my score even just one single point. The fifth time I took it, I scored a 32. When I graduated high school, I had over 600 hours of volunteerism on my resume. I held a part-time job while making great grades, playing soccer, and being involved in countless clubs and organizations. Chris was accepted to each of the 14 schools he applied to, including an Ivy League university, along with partial scholarships. But it wasn't enough. My standardized test scores placed me in the 98th percentile, but I couldn't afford to go to any school with brand recognition. Scholarships to attend schools like Cornell or Vanderbilt didn't matter. My family couldn't afford to send me to college, any college, unless the scholarship covered 100% of my expenses. The decision was made for me. Chris was left with only one option, attending the state school in Louisiana that gave him a full scholarship. He lived at home, commuting an hour each way to avoid rent. And he got his degree in just two years. I had dedicated all my academic life to the dream of advanced degrees from Ivy League schools, leading to connections with the world's movers and shakers, and a fulfilling and incredible career. I have a genius level IQ, but because I could not afford to get a shiny diploma from a fancy school, I spend my adult life under earning in my career. I have a limited network since I could only afford to attend a school close to home. I was able to achieve a college degree for free, and for that, I'm thankful. However, the upward mobility afforded one by a school like mine is quite limited. Compare that to the children of powerful, wealthy families who can afford to pay massive bribes to secure spots in schools that command respect. YouTube famous teeny boppers who brag about their interest in partying can purchase an education that sets them up for more career success and, in return, greater economic opportunity and wealth than I could attain as a high-level but poor student. This is generational. Power and wealth are maintained by these families, while those of us from the working class and middle class are duking it out to scrape up a job that pays slightly better. We work our entire lives for the opportunity to get hired at a top-tier firm or participate in the upper levels of a successful company. We are incapable of purchasing our place in society. That is the truly devastating part to me about this scandal. Rich families can afford better opportunities while those who strive to achieve something better for their families are truly only fighting for leftovers. It is better to be rich and incapable in America than it is to be competent and poor. Thanks for listening to Episode 5 of Gangster Capitalism. We would like to hear from you, the listeners. If you know anyone who has cheated, has been accepted into college through illegal means, or has a story to tell about this scandal, please reach out to tips at gangstercapitalism.com or our tip line, 347 674 6980. 
we can ensure anonymity. As we prepare to close on this chapter of season one of Gangster Capitalism with the upcoming sixth episode, we just want to say thank you for listening and for all of your continued feedback. We always love to hear from you, so if you like the podcast, please rate and review it. Gangster Capitalism is a production of C13 Originals. It's written and directed by me, Andrew Jenks, and Zach Levitt. Executive produced by me, Chris Corcoran, and Zach Levitt. Produced by Lloyd Lockridge, Perry Crowell, and Terrence Malingone. Editing by Perry Crowell and Zach Levitt. Mixing and mastering by Bill Schultz. Artwork and design is by Kurt Courtney. Original score is by Joel Goodman. And the theme song is Your Sins Will Find You Out by Eli Paperboy Reed. For more information, go to gangstercapitalism.com and follow us on Instagram at gangstercapitalism or on Twitter at gangstercapital. You can always follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Andrew Jenks. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.